Hello, Ash here. Just a quick interruption to say that you can now buy catch-up passes to watch recordings from the first Digital Works conference. The recordings are available to watch back in full until August the 9th, 2024, and they cost just £75. You can buy passes on the Digital Works website at thedigital.works. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hello and welcome to the Digital Works Podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. Today's episode features a conversation with Alid John. Alid is the Head of Membership Strategy at Condé Nast. Enjoy! Hi Alid. Hi Ash. How are you? Yes, good. Keeping well, relatively speaking, I'd say. And you're joining us from South Wales, well, Southwest Wales. Southwest Wales, we've been holed up here for, uh, well, since the end of Feb, um, for a bunch of reasons, coronavirus obviously being one of them, two young children, uh, home under construction in London, so we've been living in the countryside with patchy internet connection, trying to do our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Which are both fairly digital jobs. Yeah, um, certainly mine, more so than my wife's, uh, but she works with a range of clients. I My work is very, very... Uh, well, I work at Condé Nast, big media organisation, as as, you, as we can discuss, um, specifically on, on the digital products and digital businesses that we develop there. And let's talk a little bit about your career and then we can arrive at Condé Nast in, in a bit. I mean, I, th- I was trying to work out when you and I first met each other and I think it was through a pay together inquiry and pay together was the startup that you founded a number of years ago but what are the what is the career of of valid been over the past 10 or so years very good complex question ash <laughs> you know force me to look at myself in the mirror um yeah it's it's been a varied career in all honesty broadly speaking it's been in the media right so i started out actually as a tv producer and journalist um about 10 years ago and a little bit more And that was in sort of mainstream news organisations, ITN, Reuters, uh, you know, wanting to make a difference in the world. And I think I became particularly interested in how that sector operated as well as where it was moving to. And I I joined an organisation called Monocle a sort of few years into my career to help launch and grow their digital radio offering, which these, t- these days would be considered to be a podcast service, frankly. But um, at the time, it was built as a radio service, and we podcasted all of the shows after, the, after, the, after they went out live, as it were. Yeah, so I, I sort of gr- helped grow Modicle 24, which was a super exciting, sort of from nothing to like major revenue driver for the organisation, huge audiences, lots of different shows over, over time, and that was obviously completely digital. It was a digital audio service, in effect. Um, you can listen to it on FM or AM or any, any of the other uh, radio channels. And then I sort of fast-tracked through postgrad in business, uh, sort of six, seven years into my career, I guess, um, which helped me move from the more editorial side of the media into sort of strategic new um, business development, new venture creation, what do you, you know, whatever the jazzy terms are. Um, and that's sort of where I've been, I guess, for the last four or five years, with a two-year chunk in the middle there around developing a new payment service called Pay Together, as you mentioned. And then you find yourself at Condé Nast, you know, massive global media company. And how did that happen? I was a... So I was in discussion with a friend who worked there. There's a guy that I used to work with at The Guardian, who was a good friend. And... They were on the cusp of growing this department um, led by my then boss, a lady called Kira. And the intention of the department was to essentially develop new initiatives. So it started off being called strategic initiatives for the organisation at group levels. So from an HQ in London, businesses that would be globally scalable. Um, So not domestic to each market where Condé Nast might have a presence. Um, So we were tasked with... Well, the intention was to grow new sort of um, 
new businesses, frankly, new ventures that would have global scale and global reach. And that's one of the things of Condé Nast. It's quite unique in the market. It's an organisation that both have both has domestic presence in lots of territories, lots of markets around the world. There, there will be a Condé Nast entity. And, and also the ability to take advantage of a global scale from a kind of central point. So you, if you can create a globally scalable business, then Condé Nast's international footprint should allow you to do that um, quite quickly. So it's a very exciting project that it was begin this department which will look at new initiatives and new businesses within the group and one of the things that we spawned out of that department was uh, Nast's sort of first major investment in B2B media. Um, not totally true, there is uh, other B2B um, products in the Nast portfolio, so Architectural Digest in America, but at the time this is pre uh, the merger between Nast US and Nast International which was the parent company of all the international operations at the time. Um, and Vogue Business, which was Condé Nast's first major B2B sort of investment, is an industry publication, digital only, and this was an area which Condé Nast hadn't really explored, despite having a really strong foothold in, say, fashion, retail, luxury as a sector. Not actually completely relevant to my background, but my background spoke to looking at developing and growing um, businesses where we thought there was solid opportunity, really. And there is, and there was at the time. So Vogue Business is the first major thing to come out of that um, sort of innovation department, if you want to call it that. And people, people who are listening to this might be thinking, why, why is Ash sitting down to talk with a guy who works in the media, who works at Condé Nast, who's looking at spinning up new business ventures? And the reason I'm talking to you, Alan, is because I, I do think that you've got an interesting perspective on making digital stuff happen. And I think I'm always struck whenever you and I are chatting by some of the parallels with my work in the cultural sector, that you've worked in lots of organizations or types of organizations that historically maybe haven't understood how to engage with digital. And as a result, it's sort of maybe been deprioritized, but the the realities of those those markets now are forcing these these big organizations to to engage with digital and for those organizations to allow digital to sort of fundamentally affect their core business models and i do think to some degree the cultural cultural sector needs to go through a similar sort of process and the cultural sector obviously lives and dies on, on live experience and I don't think that's going away but the way that people access and consume experiences is you know digital is becoming an ever bigger part of that so so I'm 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 interested in sort of looking at at sort of characteristics of, of organizations where you can make good digital stuff happen and and understanding how you identify smart digital ideas so Given your experience starting a number of digital-only initiatives, whether that's around radio stations or new publications, all of those things were entirely digital in form. Are there sort of common characteristics of organisations where that stuff can happen? You know, what are the conditions that need to be created for those ideas to be able to, to be possible to be explored i'll give you a really vague answer or at least to start with ash uh, and then we can get into the detail i think because the the classic answer to that would be it depends on the organization i guess to a certain degree right what state that organization is in um if you're starting with an organization which has relatively little digital um uh input structure support um and they might outsource those things because they need some they're, they're aware they need some sort of digital um consideration as it were, uh, then it's going to be a big lift to get it up to a point where it needs to be fit for purpose in wherever the market is heading. And obviously with the pandemic this, this last few months, that has forced a step change in, in the way organisations, whether they be cultural, media or otherwise, have to engage with their users. And from an cultural organisation perspective, live experiences for the time being are trying to make, a, make ends meet through digitising those experiences to a certain degree. Um, God, we can only hope that those live experiences will come back sooner or later. Because <laughs> I do think you, uh, yeah, I used to play a lot of music back in the day and I, you miss that real live interaction with it. But 
Sorry, that's my son. He's crying. He's probably been put down for a nap, which he <laughs> doesn't like doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to probably start again. I can't remember what I was saying now. Uh, so do you, want me to, uh, do you want me to ask the question again? Would you mind? No, no, that's fine. The projects that you've worked on have all been transformative new projects um, that fundamentally changed or extended the core business of the organization that you were delivering the project in. And I'm, I'm just curious whether there are, and maybe there aren't, but whether there are any sort of common elements or key conditions that need to be present in order for projects like that to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's so many considerations to that. Uh, complete buy-in from the entirety of an organisation as to, not just buy-in, that's such a sort of sh- sh- eerie corporate term, but um, you know what I mean? It's complete support, understanding and alignment within the entire organisation, whether it be a startup to a major corporation as to the needs to do a certain thing. And, you know, that doesn't have to be digital. It could be anything, frankly. That's why OKRs, objectives and key results, are so prevalent these days, no matter what the organisation is. It's a hangover from Silicon Valley, which are typically tech-driven or tech-originated um, businesses. And OKRs, objectives, key results, they're now brought into, you know, I know people at the BBC, it's completely right from the BBC. Same in The Guardian when I was there years ago. Objectives, key results are a way of aligning teams around particular things. I think from a digital perspective, it depends to an extent where digital is an enabler or if it, is it a support function or is it completely core to the business? And if it's core to the business, i.e. we need this to achieve our overall objective to make our customers happy, make us sell more things, you know, then the level of kind of upheaval or overhaul uh, is going to be dependent on that. But, but, you know, it's no surprise to startups that start with a complete foundation of, well, we know that we need digital from the ground up, so really good data analysis, product management, um, completely customer-centric sort of product development, as it were, uh, can hit the ground running and can iterate a lot more quickly. Then you'll have arts organisations or media organisations who will be using legacy data, uh, digital infrastructure or products or be outsourcing a lot of what they provide to their customers um, They'll be outsourcing that to a third party, uh, like a ticketing engine or, 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 or a payment stack or whatever it might be. And their ability to then optimise on the stuff, which is actually completely core to their business, is completely hampered, right? Because they can't shift what they need to shift in order to improve the customer experience, which will help them sell more tickets, sell more, um, get people to read more pieces of content and the rest of it. So there's a big decision that organisation organization needs to make. This is a decision that Condé Nast has made itself, where... Do you buy off the shelf and then, you know, try and force through changes for digital products which you ultimately can't control? Um, or do you build yourself from the ground up? And a major company like Condé Nast has the ability and resource and, and budget, frankly, to, to some extent, to invest in a major piece of work like let's build, build our own content management platform, you know, our own CMS. But not all organisations have, uh, have that ability. Um, so it's probably easier for a startup to start with a clear intent and understand we need this level of structure in the organization, both from a team perspective as well as from a, like what are we building, how do we want to create it, to, an, to bigger organizations who have legacy stuff which they then need to overhaul because they, they, they've realized that actually to achieve their objectives today, especially given the acceleration of um, these requirements given coronavirus, um, it's going to be a lot tougher for them. Um, but they have to do it. And you know, it's a very uh, long answer to your no, question. No, no, it's it's a good answer because I think that it's sort of because arts organisations, cultural organisations, they're often doing so many things. They're often doing more things than many people working there are even aware of. And so I think that alignment that you that you mentioned can sometimes be difficult to achieve and you know we use okrs at substract i know i know there are other suppliers in the cultural sector who use that and it is a helpful way to align everyone's priorities um, around some sort of key institutional ambitions but i i wonder you know in and i've had a number of these podcast chats now and you know we do a series of events around this this program as well 
and often the topic of sort of leadership and digital expertise and digital literacy around leadership seems to seems to be a key consideration because historically at least maybe it's changing a little bit now but not probably not quickly enough that you know leaders in the cultural sector are not they are not leaders in the cultural sector because they are experts in digital um and so what you know when you do find a, a cultural leader who really gets it that's often happy accident rather than by any sort of um requirement to have that skill set and understanding in your experience does is you know is that a problem or can good ideas sort of come from lower down the organizational structure um or does it really need leadership to sort of truly understand the nuts and bolts of what is possible my experience you do need that strong leadership at the top. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the chief exec, you know, um, but it, it does need representation. Uh, and this is just my view. I'm sure there's successful examples where you have a very horizontal organisation where you don't need the senior representative guiding that kind of objective. But especially at major organisations with thousands of workforce, you do need representation at the, at the very top of the company, whether it's the CEO, who, and Condé Nast happens to have a very tech and product experienced CEO coming from um, Silicon Valley. Uh, but but you, you will need a very strong CTO or similar type role, technical, um, or CPO, you know, chief product person, someone who really understands that side of it. Because and this is the sort of interesting side of a product role. It's not just a tech role, right? It's actually just understanding your audience and their needs in a very granular fashion and then forming strategic objectives for your organization or your team around what the customer needs are. That doesn't have to be tech related. You know, you could have a product is typically associated with tech, but it, 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 the same could be true for any organization, which is run very well, I think, and delivering value to their customers or their users. So, yes, I think there needs to be representation and um, sort of direction being set by by senior management. Um, but it has to it has to go all the way through the organisation. Um, OKRs are they're just one mechanism to do that. And definitely, there's flaws with OKRs. It's it's often down to the implementation of them. And in a major organisation, you know, aligning OKRs all the way from the bottom of the org all the way to the top is very tricky. But it's a useful exercise, I think, even to some degree, to get teams to align around what do we need to do to deliver value to our audiences. And from a media perspective, that's, you know, we have two major audiences, advertisers, who um, since time immemorial have paid media organisations, but that revenue is declining. So ever more so, we need to understand the other side of the coin. What does our audience want and what will they pay for, which is a very important thing because you know the media sector has traditionally well for, the, for quite some time been giving too much away for free so there is value in what media organizations create we just convinced ourselves that there hasn't been that much value or the market has forced us to consider it to be lack, lacking in value um, perhaps or you take an ideological stance which suggests you need to give everything fully free at the point of access, like The Guardian, um, but ask people for donations to support the cause, which is a different way of looking at it and quite a clever way of doing it. Whether it's sustainable or not is a different question. But um, again, a long way to answer, Ash, but I think, yes, I think it needs to be very, it need, the, whoever the senior leader will be at an organisation, increasingly those people will have that experience, frankly, because as the likes of you or, or maybe me, you know, in time we, we gather, our, you know, we get more mature, mature in our careers, we will end up in those positions, or people will, and they will, they will have more experience, whether or not they are an engineer or a product person, they will have more experience in it, and I think those considerations will just become much more commonplace. And uh, you touched on something that I, I want us to come back to, the idea of monetization and, you know, the, the last three months has really forced that issue up the agenda in the cultural sector and there have been some interesting articles over the past week or so which have drawn parallels with the media sector and sort of said the, the art sector cannot do what the media sector did and give everything away for free before realizing they shouldn't have given everything away for free um 
but I just want to I just want to talk a little bit more about sort of creating the right conditions for for digital I guess because you know you identified or rather the, the reality is that for most cultural organizations apart from I mean I can think of five off the top of my head in the UK that have in-house sort of product teams and developers and designers around that everyone else works with agencies you know like Substract um, to deliver on their digital activity and I'm curious on your perspective what you know if if that is the reality you know most cultural organizations at the moment don't consider it to be the best use of their resources to build their own product teams what are the sort of skills do you think that should be retained in-house in order to make the most of those sort of external third-party supplier relationships is it having a product owner in-house is it having someone who has some design skills is it someone who can talk tech having a product owner in-house would go a long way towards answering some of those questions i think um because my title isn't product at work i work with fantastic product um team members if you like uh at work and have done a lot in the past as well um but product is a is is a useful role because it's quite 360 so you understand the impact a particular change or you will assess and you'll analyze you know what measures of success you should be looking for from a particular change that a an agency might provide for you i guess um so having that and having a strong voice for the organization in those conversations is going to be critical because otherwise you're just taking as gospel what an agency and there are lots of fantastic agencies out there and, and i don't think they'd ever do a disservice intentionally you know but just ultimately the the organization should know who their customer is better than anyone and product roles well it doesn't have to be product it could be you know it could be a very strong marketing person who happens to have a very uh, happens to understand the kind of ecosystem and the impact that little changes in the conversion funnel will have um you know things which are quite commonplace for you and i to probably consider there is probably a lack of understanding of that at major cultural organizations um or you and I've talked about this in the past, what you do to, say, take advantage of the mobile audience as opposed to the desktop audience. Where do you get most of your traffic and how can you try and convert more users there? Having represent representation in an organisation to really fight that fight, um, uh, and it doesn't have to be a fight, but sort of address the challenge and, you know, and, and try and take advantage of an opportunity uh, can only be a good thing. Whether or not they have, you know, they, they have tight budgets, understandably and this is where the agency sector comes in and helps them realize their their the challenges at hand and opportunities and really good agencies will do that in a supportive manner um, I guess the difficulty is where those organizations can't continue an agency relationship and they're left with a legacy product then which sort of gets stuck in the mud I guess and though that it can't develop and you know it can't iterate to use a very commonly used word, but um, it, it can't develop at the, t at the pace that it will need to. And, and that's, you know, that there's some things that will always be the case that you can never fully iterate your product at the pace that you need to, in reality. Um, but at least having a team or one or two individuals that know the full ecosystem and the sort of 360 picture and can advise senior leadership as to why, um, this is probably a role you yourself um, perform as to some degree, why it's important and why they need to think about it. If they don't know about it, they need to know about it. So having that voice in your organisation can only be a good thing. There are a number of interesting sort of historical reasons why digital roles in the performing arts sector in particular exist in the way that they do. You know, that digital was most easily understood by those types of organisations as a marketing thing. So therefore, digital roles ended up being introduced in the marketing department but as a result now, that sort of that that product um, perspective, which I would argue shouldn't sit directly in a marketing department. Um, it's, I think it's maybe more difficult for organizations to understand how those roles might exist within their their current understanding of digital structures. You know, if digital has always been a marketing thing and now you're hearing these words like product and, you know, 
is that still is that still where digital lives and sort of trying to break out of that pre-existing understanding of how digital has existed and trying to refine how your understanding of how digital should exist in an organization i think is a is a challenge um especially if you're you know you don't have the the people on on the staff to help you with those sorts of conversations for sure i mean especially if you've um thinking of arts organisations, if you've outsourced the majority of your tech stack uh, and, and, you know, the business end of that for arts organisations is ticketing, payments, um, CRM management, but the vast majority of organisations will not have the resources to build these things in-house and that's a given because they're incredibly complex and take a lot of time and, there's, and frankly, why would you when there's tonnes of off-the-shelf products that you can, you can use? But 10 years ago, if you're at the Roundhouse or similar... Um, you can see, you can kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. You can see how that has happened. You'll have someone who manages the relationship with your ticketing partner and then it kind of grows out of that. And at a certain point in time, you will have to take stock and think so much of our operation focuses around this, actually. We've got the live experience part, but how do we get people in the door and sell um, to the best of our ability? And how is that core to our business? Then you're going to need to realign your team around that and kind of build the team from my experience, the best, from a media perspective at least, the best teams that are sort of sat around the the customer funnel in a way. So you've got teams focusing on acquisition and engagement, uh, retention and loyalty, build that engagement. This is very important metrics for us from a media perspective, perhaps less so from an arts or ticketing perspective. But well, so no, I, have... I, cause I think that those, you know, those words are words that are used all the time you know that is what that is what cultural organizations are trying to achieve it is much cheaper to get someone who has already spent money with you to yep. spend money with you again and you know I, the cultural sector understands that i'm not sure how much of that thinking has sort of permeated through to how they configure and deliver their digital activity though yeah and that's understandable i guess uh, these are t- organizations Potentially, and this might be an unfair criticism, because um, I don't work in the, in the arts or cultural or arts or cultural sector now, um, are maybe slower to move uh, because of structural uh, restrictions or you know um, lack of budget, lack of ability, uh, fear, or lack of knowledge. Probably more so, more to the point, and not not having that strong voice internally and not being able to take an informed, you know judgment as to what the best move forward is from an internal perspective but yeah from from a media perspective the best businesses or the best examples of businesses making a good go of subscription revenue for example um they've got a, you know they've got a really strong data analysis team who are answering questions they don't even know they had around customers when they're likely to drop off based on user behavior on site and churn um marketing teams kind of or or people who think in a marketing or product way all through that funnel so acquisition retention engagement loyalty you know at at Condé Nast and particularly Vogue Business the brand I mentioned at the beginning we are always looking at how we can drive loyalty in the in the users who come the readers the audience they're more than just users these are people who depend on it's an industry publication so they, they depend on the data and insights that um, Vogue Business creates for their job, for their career. So it's, it's a clearer kind of value exchange there where they're signing up or subscribing and eventually will be paying because they believe they need the insights that have been generated for, for, for their business or their job. Um, so, you know, B2B media is an area which is a, there's a clearer value exchange there than perhaps, say, The Guardian, um, which all the times or, you know, the FT, maybe less for the FT, where it's, it's more nice to have than need to have, even though I would always argue it's need to have. Clearly, people need to be informed, but it may not, it may not be that clear to the users themselves. And building a team around that, those structures of the funnel, those areas of the funnel, acquisition, engagement, retention, loyalty, referral, um, and supported by kind of core functions like data uh, and how you can optimise for that customer journey is, is kind of critical, I think. And so, I mean, so far we've talked a lot about the ideal way of doing things and then perhaps a slightly more realistic um, approach. But I think 
as I said earlier, for, for many organizations, even moving towards the more realistic end of what we've been describing will require some quite significant organizational change. And I was just, my next question is, do you have any sort of recommendations? You know, say you're the head of digital or you're head of whatever it might be in a, in a cultural organization. How do you go about driving that change, changing, you know, because this is a cultural change, which is the hardest change to, to, to make, um, to sort of open up the conversation around what digital is, what digital could or should be and then the resources that need to be in place to to make that happen probably yeah i mean it's the hardest question to address from our conversation and definitely the most challenging for any organization's perspective i think especially if they're major like tons of workforce and and it's going to force major change from a person like from a human standpoint there clearly has to be uh, a moment where you need to set the vision built built off clear analysis as to what the opportunity is, I guess. And as with any kind of major strategic objective, uh, small or large, the organisation is going to have to align around a vision and the case needs to be made as to why. The most important thing then is empathy, I think, with, with the workforce and understanding the impacts that going in a certain direction will have. Um, Centralising, to give you an example, um, in recent years, not to keep banging on about Condé Nast and some of its activities, but in recent years they centralised a lot of the CMSs because um, there are multiple entities in different countries had different content management systems in each different country for each different title. So you're talking dozens and dozens of CMSs on an international scale. Uh, and so there was a major centralisation project kicked off years ago, which is um, underway to some degree, to some degree still, where... Brands internationally were being brought onto a central CMS, which had been built centrally. And as you know, longer term, there's greater economies of scale in terms of productivity, you know, sort of revenue alignment, understanding how things are performing better, having a simple data set, sort of like how users are interacting with content based on similar metrics. You know, um, all these things that you can see would be beneficial, but it's a hell of a lot of work and. Empathy is the key thing there because you need to be able to convey the importance of the objective to all the teams around the world who've spent years building the other CMSs, right? Um, and that will be the same for any organisation that has to overhaul or improve or start something new from scratch because you'll need to make the case and why are you doing it and why will this benefit the organisation and each individual? And often that's a very tough case to make. Um, I look back at my time at The Guardian at the time it was a I was only there relatively briefly, just under a year, and it was a time to look at how they could try move towards break even. And there was major, you know, major considerations there. But one thing the organisation at the time was attempting to do was drive forward its digital footprint and keep growing the audiences at the rate they were doing up to a point where they were about to enter into a, a period of cost saving, in effect. And it's a different. You know, you're dealing with two very major challenging things there. Drive for the audience because longer term we should be able to make gains from having one of the biggest online audiences in the world um, and a relatively small print uh, circulation. Whilst you know, pushing forward a cost-cutting agenda is a very, very difficult thing to do, um, but ultimately probably quite important to be able to sustain The Guardian for the longer term. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it, in human terms, it's set a vision and build alignment around that from a team and structural uh, objective perspective and then you have to kind of get cracking with it and it's going to be it's going to be a challenging thing to do yeah and I think that that final point is a, is a key one really because I think it is it's quite easy to slip into paralysis because you don't feel like you've done enough planning and I'm not advocating that you should do no planning but I think sometimes just getting started will uh, give you a level of insight that no amount of planning is ever going to equip you with yeah we talk a lot about at work or we did certainly um when we started that department i mentioned sort of new innovation and new new business uh new ventures within within the group we talked about we just need to you can start by starting as opposed to start by planning you know 
can have research and business cases up the wazoo. <laughs> you can justify anything after a while. But from a testing appetite or testing demand, um, thinking from the customer's perspective first, you just need to go out and do that, actually. Do it in ways that don't necessarily imperil brands or whatever. You know, Do it in a way where you can try and gauge appetite at a, on a neutral scale for a new thing you're developing. Um, you can see parallels from that with how an organisation can actually start thinking, let's just start by actually trying to test you know, that's, what's the hypothesis that we're trying to prove, that we think we can improve this thing by doing this thing differently. How can we prove that hypothesis quicker than you know, spending six-figure sum on some consultancy like Deloitte to tell you how to do it? Um, yeah, I'd say start by starting and do it with a lot of empathy because there will be people who have to be brought along for the ride. And my final question is returning to a point we briefly touched on earlier around money. Um, and your current role at, at Condé Nast is, I believe, head of membership strategy? It is, yes. And, you know, you mentioned that across the media landscape, the, the historic primary source of income was advertising revenue. And that is going down across the board, regardless of how much people's digital audiences are growing and the amount of data they have about those audiences and the more sophisticated way they can serve ads, the, the sort of total amount of advertising spend is reducing. So, I mean, people would have seen this manifest in paywalls and, uh, you know, some organisations going, taking their publication entirely digital, an example of The Independent, um, et cetera, et cetera. Various attempts to try and drive new revenue streams from the sort of core content which I think is something the cultural sector has never necessarily engaged with directly. Again, I think that's possibly slightly related to the fact that digital was seen as a marketing thing. It wasn't necessarily seen as something that had inherent value in and of itself. And I think the explosion of cultural content we've seen over the last three months has probably shifted perceptions um, in that area. And I'd be surprised if we see everyone snapping back to the way that they engaged with digital before. But I just wonder what your perspective is, you know, given that you've swum in these waters for a little while of, of trying to better understand what goes into the decision-making process of someone who's then willing to pay for a subscription or pay for access to something what lessons are there that you think the cultural sector should be mindful of now? Because what we've seen is a sort of very direct translation of thinking so far. So, you know, we sell tickets at this price for our physical experiences. And so we will do exactly the same for uh, the, the sort of digital for, access to the digital version of, of that play for example and i just wonder whether i wonder how robust that approach is and that and whether that's in in your in your experience the right way to be going or does actually the fact that digital is different require a different approach Ooh, that's a good that's a big one <laughs> <laughs> it's all all the easy questions today <laughs> yeah. first thing on a friday morning um, yeah, I need another coffee. Jesus. Uh, so I'm going to paraphrase if that's okay, the question, just to make sure I understand it correctly and yeah. obviously edit it out if you need to. Um, what lessons can the cultural sector take from understanding this kind of user's journey through to Yeah, payment? so I, I, I mean, I guess what we've seen over the last three months is a, a departure from what I'd previously outlined as the way that on the whole the sector engaged with digital so what we have seen is people directly engaging with digital as a way of delivering um, and manifesting cultural experiences because the live in-person experience is not possible at the moment and what we've also seen to, in 99.9 percent .9 of cases is that those initiatives have been made available at no cost there have been um, you know, to call back to one of your earlier examples, they've been the sort of guardian approach with with a sort of a fairly soft donation ask, you know, please support us so we can carry on doing this sort of thing. But even with someone like 
the National Theatre and their um, stream of One Man, Two Governors, which got over 2 million views, they made about 100 grand on that. And one might suggest that that is not, therefore, a sustainable way of, of trying to monetize that activity. And so my, my question is, given that the, the media sector gave everything away for free for a number of years, you know, a decade or more, and then realized actually that wasn't sustainable and tried to paywall it. Um, what, what lessons might there be for the cultural sector as, as we start to think about how to monetize that digital activity? From a, from quite a, um, Conceptual level, I'd say, understand the value of what you're creating and uh, and what need the audience or your users have for that, right? And there's look, whatever the metrics that are relevant to your sector, you need to consider, um, or or sort of directional data in a way that tells you this person is likely to buy or likely to re- be retained or or churn. God forbid. Um, you need to understand that whole sort of experience piece from the user's perspective so but first and foremost you don't want to just because the internet allows for insane scale if you can tap into that from a media perspective it's been proven to be the case that actually scale doesn't necessarily equal a sustainable business model anymore and um i don't think it ever really did but at the time was we can just keep on growing and growing and growing um that makes sense up to a point because you can think, well, we have this humongous audience. How many of them come back, you know, two to four times a day, let alone two to four times a month? And how can we determine what actual levels of engagement look like? And clearly, if you have huge scale, you can then try and slap a price tag on it and see how much you convert. So first for me is understanding the value of what you're creating um, and how important it is or should be to your audience. That's one lesson for sure. Go on, sorry. I'm not on that... I'm going to do some jumping in now because I do think this is a key area um, that it feels like my sector, you know, the cultural sector is slowly realizing is key, but I'm not sure anyone really has a clarity about where they should start. So in your experience, sort of exploring, measuring value, um, exploring, measuring an actual price level, do you have any insights as to how a theatre might go about starting to do that. Sure. So you want to understand who your users are. And this is where things like anonymous data isn't as useful. You can use it up to a certain point, but you really want to get that first party data, I guess, uh, and build an audience. And you can do that through whatever means. You know, we built Vogue Business off the back of a newsletter because we wanted to build an engaged audience. So we knew how they what they read in the newsletter. And you can, you know, you can track all that stuff very easily. So make sure you know who your audience are and what they like and what they don't like. And it's very, and how they perform on your site or on your, how they engage with your collateral, um, whatever that might be. Newsletters coming to shows, how often do they come? At what point do they no longer keep paying? Uh, when, when are they more likely to buy? So you do need to understand that. Um, so to start by starting, I'm just trying to think in really simple, practical terms. Uh, take a segment of your audience and understand at what point they dropped off on their website versus stayed on to convert in the funnel. And like, this is super simple stuff, and I'm sure you, this isn't um, rocket science for any of you or your clients. Uh, but without that intrinsic knowledge of what value your user has and how they behave on your sites or your or in your venues, even your physical venues, then you, you, you're missing a trick to a, to a huge degree. And, yeah, so sorry, I, I obviously jumped in and interrupted there, interrupted you. So step one is is about thinking about value and understanding why and what people value. Why, what is the value exchange and what are they getting for it? You know, you can do a simple, you don't need to do a competitive landscape to look at what else is out there, but... Um, I always say the sort of user research function, um, which is often not present in smaller orgs because, again, they haven't got the budget or resource, but someone who really dives into an audience's needs and, and what they value, what they can't live without, what's a day in the life of that user, you know, and where, 
where does the product that you're trying to monetize or create fall into that day in the life or month in the life of whatever? You really need to get under the, under the skin of all of that. So for me, I'm, I'm picking where the value is in what you're trying to sell or, or offer up to a customer group is is critical. So the first point. And then you can you, you will inevitably have a ton of data that you may not be aware of on, on, on the users that you currently have or have had for some time. And get under the skin of that. So who are they? What are their demographics? It's simple marketing stuff, right? And this, it doesn't mean digital has to form off the back of marketing, but it's like simple rule book. Who are our users? How are they interacting with us? On what platforms? Are they coming through mobile? Are they coming through desktop? Um, in terms of what is the value of each individual user, you can't really assess that until you understand that journey. So how likely are they to stay for nine months buying this many tickets for certain events if they perform these kind of behavioral traits on your platforms. And that's where major media organizations are doing a lot of exciting work these days with really in-depth data analysis on this user comes back this many times a month um, across these different touch points. And we know that means, you know, that's a simple level. They re- they re- this is their loyalty metric. They come back this often. They're more likely to be retained as a user. So what can we do ahead of that to keep that sort of comfortable inertia that the user feels that they'll be reminded of the value they're being offered so they're not going to churn um it's something that amazon or netflix does and there's lessons like uh scary as those organizations might be um certainly to the cultural sector but definitely sort of at a kind of macro scale what they do very well is they keep on reminding the users of the value they're providing and for, for those organizations it's chucking more features essentially into into the value proposition cultural orgs may not be able to do that to the same extent clearly they won't be but you do need to understand what your what makes your users tick um and that's one of the great lessons from netflix right they built it they built some of the most successful shows off the back of seeing where the data suggested they should be creating things uh, and they went ahead and created those things um does that answer any of what you were asking us i think it does and i think you t- you started to touch on a another point and i interrupted you because that's what i do um but you you started to talk about how you know enormous scale is not necessarily where the value is and i was just wondering if you could maybe Mm. where where was that thought headed so if you have a better understanding of your customers um actually you don't necessarily need the scale to achieve your commercial aims and um, you just need to be able to optimize the experience and and, and of clearly the value exchange for for your users or your customers so you don't need to keep on fishing for new users you've got returning users and that's a simple thing right because it's going to cost you a lot less to acquire to 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 reinstate a purchase or to get a user who has bought with you before to buy again. It just is, donate again, or whatever whatever it might be. Um, and that's just simple economics. And any finance person, as soon as you, if, if you have a sort of an old accountancy department in your accounting department in your organization who doesn't really understand the merits of digital, if digital is a function which can help you understand that, actually, if we optimize what we've created, digitally speaking, we, we don't need to keep on fishing for that many more people at the top of the funnel you know, in terms of pure acquisition speak, uh, you can actually just keep on building an engaged following from a smaller subset of that audience um, and increase the yield per user, you know. And uh, so taking the steps towards helping you understand what that yield increase can be and therefore what the increase in customer lifetime value is on a user-by-user basis um, is the sort of... I guess, the overlay of any organization who thinks of things in these terms. Because you're definitely going to be spending a hell of a lot of money to try and acquire new users through completely new marketing each time that you have something new and shiny you want to offer. Um, but going back on that, it, it, to some degree, there are, there are lessons that I think can be learned from what we're trying to do at Condé Nast with an investment in B2B media, typically a much smaller, more niche user base, right? than a B2C media offering. So it's not major consumer coverage. It's quite granular, specific to a subset of the consumer groups, people who actually work in the sectors. And, you know, B2B media wasn't a particularly sexy thing for quite a long time, sort of trade magazines and and stuff like that. 
But actually, it's it's an enduring strand within the media from where lots of lessons can be learned because fundamentally it is offering something you know is of of a need to a particular user group and digitally speaking we can really dive into that you know user behavior to to what extent that directional data will help us understand if they're going to purchase or be retained or churn um, but at its core it's you're offering something that you know to be of value because these customers need it to get ahead in their work uh, and their businesses need it to to answer business critical questions so it's it's sort of simple stuff i guess yeah and i think that 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 final point aligns with something i've been interested in recently so seth godin um famous digital bald man um has this concept of not all of us can have lovely hair like you ash okay well indeed it is <laughs> disappearing backwards at an alarming rate um but i i saw him speak at an arts marketing conference and he introduced this this concept of of the minimum viable audience mm. you know we shouldn't be trying to reach you know thousands and thousands of people actually we need to really clearly understand what it is that we're offering and why the people that love it love it and then we should be trying to very surgically identify more of those types of people yeah exactly um you know what is what is the minimum number of people you need in order to keep your business you know in order to make your idea happen hmm. and that is something of a shift in traditional arts marketing thinking certainly in this in this country but i think in a digital context as you as you've outlined that is the only way you're going to create things that users value and then that users are going to be willing to pay for. Here, here, to that. Um, you're never gonna, you know, these organisations um, will never be able to compete with the likes of an Amazon Prime or a Netflix. And they have very different objectives, right? There's this global domination and they will throw money in it and they won't be profitable for quite some time as business units or enterprises until they get... You know, until they have full scale and they decide it, they're going to start hiking the prices for the users who are on board at some point, right? And they'll start um, making a hell of a lot of money than they currently do. But because that's the landscape that we're operating, operating in, you, the organisations who can't compete with that need to focus on what they can achieve and provide value for the customers they know they have. And just as you said, do it in a surgical manner where actually you will be able to build a business off the back of a dependent audience on what you're creating and not to underprice what you're doing because it is of value to that user. And on that note, Alid, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Ash. Thanks for having me.